Our world is filled with worshipers of common gods. People all over the world worship many different gods who are expected to deliver health, wealth, and prosperity. And countless preachers in our own land are willing to profane the name of God so that He looks pretty much like these false gods. Really not a lot of difference. The true God is heralded as just another dispenser of good fortune. Push the right buttons and God gives me what I want. Countless others worship innumerable gods worldwide who impose a sort of flat tax on eternal bliss. The emphasis here is not so much on getting what you want immediately, but it's the end game. And if you do a certain thing, it will all work out well in the end. Do the right rituals with an acceptable degree of consistency. And you will, in the end, gain eternal reward of some sort or another. And again, our land teams with churches who profane the name of God to look just like these false gods. Common gods who make petty, ritualistic demands on their followers in exchange for some deliverance in another world somewhere. What a thrill to gather today in worship of the living God who is entirely distinct from the common gods of this world. He is wholly other. He is holy. As we continue our investigation of God's holiness in Scripture, we've come to understand that holiness speaks of God's separateness, of His apartness, His otherness. To say that God is holy is to say that He is absolutely, incomparably, transcendently distinct. By nature, He is uncommon and wholly other. We've worked our way through creation and seen God's holiness in His distinction from all that He made. He is not part of creation, but He is hallowed above it as Lord and Maker. We looked at the fall and saw in the fall an attempt to subvert subvert the holiness of God by becoming like Him. Bringing Him down in His holiness. Bringing man up in our commonness to be like God. We then looked last week at the law of God delivered to Moses and saw there the tabernacle in its erection, this ritualistic separation of the people from God residing in the glorious presence hovering over the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And those concentric circles around the holiness of God to mark out His holiness from His people. We saw the priesthood and the careful preparation of approaching God through laws of ritual sacrifice. And then we saw the laws of ritual cleanness in everyday life. Just common experiences of life rendered God's people unclean and they were constantly reminded, not necessarily because of overt sin, but simply by humanity. Reminded again and again that we are unclean. Simple bodily fluids passing from the body would mark out uncleanness. There's nothing you could do about it, nothing sinful in it. Just this, this 
common daily life reminded again and again and again that God is holy and we are common. We move then, logically, to holiness and this theme in the prophets of Israel. Israel failed miserably to keep God's law and His code of holiness for the nation. And this, this leads to the ministry of the prophets who were heralds calling the people to repent of their sin and to obey the law of God. But you wonder, is that really necessary? Thinking of all these things we've considered This emphasis on God's holiness that was pervasive in the nation. There is the Sabbath, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the ritual sacrifices, the laws dealing with ritual uncleanness. This incessant reminder of the sinfulness and the commonness of God's people. Do we really need to hear another message? Do the prophets really need to say, be holy people as your God is holy? You wonder if this was not a source of incessant discouragement. The holiness of God, the call upon our lives to be holy people, as as the Israelites were, and yet this constant failure to stand up to the standard that God expects. Was this not a source of constant discouragement? Not in the estimation of God, and not certainly in the estimation of Isaiah the prophet, who speaks of God as the Holy One of Israel. Twenty-five times in this book, he pictures God as the Holy One of Israel. Bridging the gap between a holy God and a sinful people then, we learn, just just as we take this, and consider it, we learn that bridging that gap between is not achieved by emphasizing man's goodness. We might think along those terms. All of this emphasis on the holiness of God and the sinfulness of people, and then we write the script this way, the prophets come in and tell people, it's going to be okay. You're really not all that bad. You're pretty good people after all. God just wanted to make a point. But now that you've got that point, let us talk to you about how good you really are. You can do this. That is not how God leads His nation. Not at all. And we find that bridging this gap then also is not going to be achieved by minimizing the holiness of God. Now I know that we've put dread fear in you over these generations as Israelites, but let's let's talk about God now. He's, He's really a pretty nice God. A decent God, if you get to know Him, He's not really all that scary. None of this is the way forward. With all of Israel's failure, the prophets come and say again and again, Holy is the Lord. So there is something in our sinfulness and bridging the gap to this holy God that is accomplished not by minimizing God's holiness, but by accentuating it. Not by elevating our goodness as humans, but by seeing our sin for what it really is. And almost nowhere in Holy Scripture is the holiness of God sounded with any greater clarity by the prophets, with any greater splendor than we find in Isaiah's vision of God recorded in chapter 6. 
Isaiah 6, if you'll make your way there as we consider this text, it is a familiar passage to us. We've considered it in different contexts in the past. And I think a passage we need to refresh in our minds routinely because of its unique significance. I think no series on the theme of God's holiness is complete without this text. And so we revisit it today and consider this revelation anew. We find, first of all, as this text unfolds, that Isaiah sees the Lord in the year that King Isaiah died. The prophecy starts, the historical setting of this vision, 52 years Isaiah had reigned, reigning over the kingdom of Judah, which flourished under his leadership. The stability and prosperity of the reign of Isaiah was second in Israeli history only to that of King Solomon some 200 years earlier. But when Isaiah died, Judah faced political uncertainty in the face of the growing menace of the Assyrian kingdom to the north. Coupled with upheaval at the capital city of Jerusalem, it was a difficult time, many questions. But I think that Isaiah's death is also highly significant to this theme of holiness. Last week we talked at great length about those elaborate circles of restriction that surrounded the temple and the people, who, the Levites, who were able to enter into that temple complex and only the Aaronic priest into the temple itself and only the high priest one day per year on the Day of Atonement into that holiest place the Holy of Holies, that inner sanctum. You remember that whole structure of ritual separation. You know what Isaiah decided to do one day? I don't know where it landed in his reign, but he reigned for 52 years and was a prosperous king. And somewhere he got the notion in his head, I'm really good. And I'm so good, I'm going to go into the temple and I'm going to offer incense there inside the place where only the ironic levitical priests were to pass and as recorded in second chronicles 26 as he reached out his hand he was filled with leprosy god struck him in a, a decisive judgment in that moment and Isaiah got out of there about as fast as his feet could carry him the priests had challenged him and said, don't do this. This is an assault on the holiness of God. Don't do this. But he said, forget you. I'm going to go in here. I'm that important. But God changed his mind real quickly. His leprosy broke out upon his body and King Isaiah died of leprosy. And in his leprosy, he would have passed the rest of his life in ritual uncleanness. It's in the year that that king died that Isaiah has this vision. So Judah is worrying about her earthly king. She's worrying about her earthly kingdom. And Isaiah is ushered into the throne room in this setting, into the throne room of the king of the universe. And so the vision is essentially lay aside your earthly concerns, Isaiah. Isaiah's throne is history. But stand now before the throne that will never pass away. 
Isaiah will now see God, who is spirit, but who here here takes on the robe of visibility so he may reveal truth about himself to Isaiah. It is a vision that will change Isaiah forever. In the year that King Isaiah died, verse 1, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. God's throne lifted Him high in the air above Isaiah, figuratively as well as literally, it would appear, and the train of His robe fills the temple. Whether that temple is the temple in the city where Isaiah lived in Jerusalem, or perhaps the earthly temple melts away before his eyes and he sees the eternal throne of God on which the earthly temple was modeled, Hebrews 9, I don't know. But he receives this vision of God. Standing before the Lord of the universe, Isaiah begins to describe what he sees. And all he can bring himself to write is that the train or possibly the hem of God's robe fills the temple. Now think on that. Some of you have considered this at length, but maybe many of you never thought about that. It just kind of flies by. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the hem or the train of His robe filled the temple. Isaiah sees God. He stands in His presence. He sees Him exalted on a throne. And the first thing that Isaiah describes is the floor. Imagine that you went to a a great Broadway play about a great king. You couldn't wait to see this play about this great king. And uh, you fly all the way out to New York City just to see this performance. And you fly back and everybody says, how was the play about the great king? And your only answer is, he had a really long robe. It's kind of odd, isn't it? It's a strange way to illustrate what you've seen. But Isaiah's initial response to this stunning vision of God is not to look in God's face, but to look down on the floor. Such visions of God's glory are rare, but centuries earlier, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel climbed up onto Mount Sinai at the invitation of God, Exodus 24, and their description of seeing God is this, Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire clear as the sky itself. That's their description of God. Nothing further is said about how God looks. And we say, Moses, come on, Aaron. We want to know what God looks like. When he takes on the robe of visibility, how does he look? Describe him. There's a blue pavement under his feet. That's it. Isaiah, you saw God. Please let us know. How does he look? He's got a robe that's really big. You know what? I don't know what that means. Here we are this 
long distant from Isaiah's description, who knows what that means? That the train of his robe filled the temple. I don't know. Was it light effulging off of his body and just a lot of billowing fabric? We don't even know what it means. Let alone the significance. All we know is that Isaiah is looking away from God. And I can only assume because the vision was overwhelming. I saw him on a throne high and lifted up. His robe covered the floor. We see the attendance of this holy God in verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim, a plural Hebrew word meaning flaming ones or fiery ones, a reference to angelic creatures, the flaming beauty who attend the Lord. And you see uh, the direction of Isaiah's eyes. Now it's from the floor to above the throne of God. And they are said to be standing here above that throne. Isaiah apparently turning his gaze now to these attendants of the king who perhaps hover above him. But the idea of standing is the Hebrew word is that they stand ready. They are here to serve the desires of the king. And they're described in verse 2 as having six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. Magnificent creatures positioned above the Lord ready for His command, and physically designed to thrive in the environment for which they are created. A mountain goat is made for certain things and not for others. A mountain goat, thick inner fur with long outer coat to withstand cold temperatures, short powerful legs with sharp long hooves that allow them to climb rocky surfaces. Now you put that next to a dolphin and there's a lot of difference, isn't there? Dolphin is created for the sea. Indeed, to frolic in the sea. The long, sleek body, the dorsal fin enabling them to glide through the water, teeth designed to eat small fish. A dolphin and a mountain goat are extremely different because they're made for a certain environment. When God created seraphim, these angels, these flaming angels, to attend him, he gave them the ability to fly. He gave them two wings with which to fly, but also with two wings they cover their face. As Oswald says, even the most perfect of creatures dare not gaze brazenly into the face of the Creator. Isaiah is looking below, above, and to these creatures they cover their face before the holiness of God. With two wings, they cover their feet. I think this is probably an evidence of the oriental sign of humble respect and public etiquette. The seraphim display appropriateness and reverence toward God. They're able to fly, as we've mentioned, to hastily perform God's bidding. They're created that way for that capacity. Their physical design is an adaptation to the environment and the purposes of God. And what is key here is that they cover their face in the presence of His holiness. What is their message? Verse 3. 
And one called to another, probably a reference to antiphonal singing of some sort, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. So as Isaiah stands there and avoids, in some sense, a description of what he sees in the face of God, these angelic beings lifting up this song of praise and the, the emphasis is on the holiness of God and the glory, His glory that fills the earth. This word, holy, is again our Hebrew word kadosh that we looked at a few weeks ago. He is set apart. He is consecrated. He is separate. He is holy other. There's no God like Him in all the earth. He is the opposite of the Hebrew word whole, common, or profane. And they say holy, holy, holy. Three times. In English, at least today in our printed text, we use capital letters. We use an exclamation point or mark. We underline in some way draw attention to emphasize here a significant point. In the Hebrew text of Scripture, there are no such markers. All the letters just run right together and there's, there's not even spaces or periods. And so how do you emphasize in such text a significant point? You say it twice. The Israelites would repeat, would emphasize a point by repeating it. There are numerous evidences in the Hebrew text of the twofold superlatives, saying something twice. Maybe like Jesus said, truly, truly, or verily, verily. I really want to make a point. This is a point of great distinction, as he would make that in the, in the Greek New Testament. But we have here one of only five threefold superlatives in the Bible, and this is the only one that is pointed to the character of God. He is holy, holy, holy. He is absolutely, incomparably, transcendently distinct and separate from everything else. He is so great, the angels sing, that the whole earth is full of His glory. Here the Hebrew word kavod speaks of weightiness or importance and thus speaks of God's splendor and His majesty. He is all-important. If God's holiness is His separateness, His apartness then, we might conclude that God is uninvolved with His creation. But no, as the angels say, to the contrary, the whole earth is full of His glory. The stunning splendor and greatness of God's uniqueness is evident everywhere, though He is distinct from His creation. It witnesses to His glory, to His importance, to His might, to His holiness. The only way that this holiness and this glory can be missed is if one is spiritually blind. These creatures have their faces covered, but they're not blind to this glory. They see it for what it is. And this is a reverberating message, literally, verse 4. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. 
Apparently, Isaiah emphasizes the doorway because that's where he's standing. Smoke in the Old Testament was a covering from the glory of God's presence. If you saw the glory of God in all of its fullness, you were likely to die on the spot. And so often this, this cloud would appear to cover the brightness of God's glory, and that is what is taking place here. It is an awesome scene that will leave Isaiah forever changed. The question is, will he live to tell about it? The smoke gives us some hope. that The glory of God is somehow shrouded. The thing I come back to, that this is really an amazing revelation in the sense that this is so obvious. God has stressed the point of His holiness to Israel in numerous ways, interlapping, overarching ways and through their daily life and their ritual as a people of God. God continues to make the point that He is holy God. Yet we have this grand vision of His holiness that is continually emphasized. We see this old truth in a new light As as Isaiah sees this old truth in a new light, he is changed. You know, we will never see God exactly like Isaiah sees Him here, I don't believe. With all of this sensory overload, angelic proclamation, and shining glory, and billowing smoke, and quaking earth, We may not see God in all of His glory that way, certainly not in this lifetime, yet we have here the full benefit of this written record. Do we recognize as the followers of the Lord and as Bible believers how many people have never considered such a vision of God? They only know the common gods of this world. You push the button and the God hopefully dispenses some blessing. They don't know this God of utter distinction, but we do in the pages of Scripture. And the question is, do I get the message as Isaiah did? If I do, if I really get some sense of the genuine holiness of God, I will inevitably see myself in a certain way. Isaiah sees God in the first four verses. In verse 5, he sees himself. It's inevitable. Verse 5, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah expresses a sense of utter ruin. He's a prophet by trade, right? That's his work. And the prophets spoke oracles for God. There were several kinds of oracles. One was the blessing. A prophet could speak blessing to the people. The second was curse. And it would often be introduced by the word woe. He would introduce a curse upon the people because of their failure to obey God's law. And so he would say woe and announce his oracle of condemnation. You see what Isaiah is doing? He turns that on himself and says, woe is me. I am condemned. When you grasp the holiness of God, the unholiness of your heart is exposed. And he says what? Something kind of strange, actually. I dwell in the midst 
I'm a man of unclean lips dwelling in a culture of people who have unclean lips. I don't know why he chooses that. But he realizes that he lives in a vile world where people's lips speak words that belch up the gases of depraved hearts. He's influenced by this godless culture and he realizes it. Seeing God as holy always results in seeing myself as unholy, as profane, as impure, as unclean. Now there's many people that come to churches and what they want to hear is you're really not all that bad. And there's all kinds of common gods that are willing to dispense that message. It's all going to be okay if you try a little harder, get this fixed, get that fixed, and you'll be a good person. That's not where Isaiah is standing right now. He's standing before the true and holy God, and he says, I am condemned. I am hopeless. Woe is me. I speak wrong words which reflect my selfish heart. I live in the midst of a people who do the same. Threatening words, selfish ultimatums, unkind, critical, mean-spirited words, slanderous speech, shading the truth in order to protect myself to gain an advantage over others. Complaining, unthankful words. That's my mouth. And Isaiah says, that's my mouth. That's my speech. That's the world in which I live. Why does he say this? Because, at the end of verse 5, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's sin is exposed and he deserves to be condemned. He understands, as the author of Hebrews would later put it, 12.14, without holiness no one will see the Lord. So as Isaiah stands there before a holy God waiting for his wrath to consume him on the spot, something amazing happens. He sees God. He sees Himself. In verse 6, God bridges the gap between. Then, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. One of the seraphim flies to minister to Isaiah. And we say, wait a minute, aren't aren't the seraphim supposed to serve God and His purposes? Yes, they are. And this is God's business. He sends this seraphim to fly and to minister to Isaiah The seraph doesn't fly in his own initiative. He's sent by God to minister in this way. And he goes to the altar and takes a burning coal from there. That could refer to the altar of burnt offering. It could refer to the altar of incense, which stood in front of the Holy of Holies. In either case, the point is, wherever this coal came from is less significant than how it is used. How is this burning coal employed by the angel he takes it and he touches the mouth of isaiah he in a sense cauterizes his tongue so isaiah stands before a holy god condemned 
he stands helpless before God's throne with head bowed, anticipating the holy wrath of God to pour down upon him. And instead of judgment, one of these burning ones, these seraphim, takes a burning coal and purifies his tongue. And there is this promise, this word of encouragement. This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. A burning fire is a common Old Testament image of purification. And so it is here. And we have to ask this important question then, what does Isaiah do to earn this forgiveness? We have a massive gap here between a thrice holy God and a common individual in all of his sin. What does Isaiah do to bridge the gap between? What is the answer? Nothing. He's standing there. He does see himself for who he is, but it is God who moves his way. The answer, the redemption, comes not from within Isaiah, but comes from God's initiative, sending an angel to the altar, taking a coal, and ministering to Isaiah in his sin. God takes the initiative, and there is our hope. Your sin, says the Lord, is atoned for. God's anger against Isaiah's sin is satisfied. Isaiah's sin is covered by God's unmerited grace. God has moved to Isaiah, bridging the gap. And it's here that the rejoicing starts. This vision is an overwhelming scene, if not a terrifying one throughout, but it is here before the throne of this thrice holy God that the angelic choirs break into glorious song. Why? Because God's glory fills all the earth, but never more than when a sinner's sin is atoned for. When God shows His glory and shows His grace and reaches out to sinners removing their sin. He bridges the gap between His holiness and our sin, providing this atonement, this forgiveness of sin. And the ultimate hope here were we talking to someone that had never read the Bible before, we would certainly not stop here, would we? That your ultimate hope is that somewhere an angel visits you and puts a burning coal on your lips. I mean, first of all, that doesn't sound like very good news, does it? But is that where we're going to stop with this? No, there's a theme here, an idea that's being woven into this vision that's pointing us ultimately elsewhere. And I think Isaiah moves that way within his prophecy in the 53rd chapter when he points to the servant of the Lord who will be the one to bridge the gap. It says in 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Who are we? The unholy, the profane. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was cursed for our iniquities. Upon Him, this servant of the Lord, was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. We are common. We are profane. We are unclean. We are sinners. And, here's the bridge, the Lord 
has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it is here, here in our utter unholiness, here in the blazing light of God's glory, that we see that God is no common God. Here you stand in the blazing glory of His holiness. You stand as a naked self in all your vile moral filth before the searching brightness of God's holiness. You become acutely aware that it is your sin against this holy God that is your greatest earthly affliction and your sin that put Jesus Christ on the cross. And as you stand before God's throne, as you stand in this misery before the searing light of God's holiness, as you recognize the wickedness of your mouth, it is here then that in trembling fear and cold misery that you reach out in simple faith to the one who was sacrificed in your place. Here the altar is not burning literally, but a cross on which the sacrifice dies. And as you stand there in your guilt and reach there to Christ crucified, you feel the warmth of the robe of Jesus' righteousness hung from your naked shoulders. And it is then that you join voice with the seraphim and you learn there at the cross to sing. Because in Christ's death and resurrection, the Holy God moves toward you. Not as your judge, but as your Savior and Redeemer from sin. Not as one who's there to dispense what you want, but who tells you ultimately what you need. And you find there at the foot of the cross the most treasured, possession of all to stand righteous before this holy God. This is no common God. And this is no common salvation. Let's bow before His throne. Father, I stand before You as a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. We stand before Your throne as people with unholy hearts and unholy loves. The splendor and the glory of Your name fades in the light of what we want to do, how we want to experience this life, what we believe to be all important, how we set you aside to do our thing, which so often is religious.
I plead, Father, in your mercy and your grace that you would meet us in our unholiness here. There are some people with us here today, undoubtedly, who do not know Christ as their Savior, this one smitten for them, this one who was struck down in death as a righteous substitute for their sin. They don't know him. I plead, Father, that you'd open their eyes to see the wonder of having sins forgiven by faith in Jesus crucified and risen. I pray for us who know you as Savior. We pause and give you thanks. We plead, Father, for your grace and your goodness to us in Christ. And we sing now with joy a song of redemption. We sing of your holy, untouchable splendor. And we sing with great joy, not because we are great, but because you are great. And not because you are merely great, but in your mercy you have reached down and brought us into fellowship through the work of our Savior. We thank you and we sing of your greatness in his name. Amen.